Okay, uh, good afternoon uh, and welcome to uh, this afternoon's session of uh, Fairy Tales Reimagined. Uh, my name is uh, Con Verivis and uh, I'm from uh, Film and TV Studies at Monash University and I'll be chairing uh, this afternoon's panel, uh, which is entitled uh, If the Shoe Fits, uh, Interpreting Cinderella. And uh, our three panellists this afternoon, uh, whom I'll uh, introduce uh, ahead of each of their papers, are uh, Meredith Jones, Sarah Gibson and uh, Peter McNeil. I was going to say just quickly before we started that uh, in terms of uh, Cinderella tales, the one that I remember is, uh, is a 1960s, I think, version that I used to watch uh, on television as a kid which had chimpanzees uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the roles. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget the sight of that size eight and a half uh, chimpanzee foot being forced into a size five uh, glass, uh, glass slipper. Uh, people might not remember that version. Okay, I'll move, uh, I'll move right along. Okay, so our first speaker uh, this afternoon is, uh, is Meredith Jones. And uh, Meredith Jones is a cultural studies scholar based at the University of Technology, uh, Sydney. Uh, she's interested in culture and technology, uh, gender, popular media, and, uh, and studies of the, uh, of the body. Um, Meredith has written extensively about body modifications, in particular cosmetic surgery, and she's author of the books Skin Tight, An Anatomy of Cosmetic Surgery, and Cosmetic Surgery, A Feminist Primer. She blogs and writes fiction, and she's the co-founder with Suzanne Boccoletti of the Innovative Trunk Books series, about which we'll hear something more tomorrow in the session, Working Creatively with Fairy Tales. Uh, today, she's going to talk about uh, Princess Diana, Kate Middleton, Lady Gaga and Michael Jackson, and her presentation this afternoon is entitled The Princess and Makeover Culture. So welcome, Meredith Jones. Thanks, Con. Can you all hear me all right? A bit short for the microphone, maybe. Yay, a slide. Okay. Uh, yeah, so my talk is called The Princess and Makeover Culture, and I'm going to begin uh, by explaining what makeover culture is. Uh, I've taken the word makeover from contemporary popular culture, where it's almost ubiquitous when describing things like dieting, cosmetic surgery, fashion, home renovation, uh, interior decorating, gardening, urban renewal, the list goes on, food preparation, even business invigoration. And my broad argument in, in my other work, in, in my sort of umbrella argument, is that makeover culture is a state where becoming is more desirable than being. So The Swan was a reality TV show about cosmetic surgery. I'm sure most of you have at least heard of it. In the same genre, um, it, that, this genre actually died about four years ago. So these, these kinds of TV shows are not being made anymore, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in the same genre as The Swan, we had the shows Dr 90210, uh, Extreme Makeover, and I Want a Famous Face. Um, for The Swan, 
Uh, each episode featured uh, women spending a period of months undergoing multiple cosmetic surgeries and also undergoing brutal grooming and diet and exercise regimes. These women were presented as deserving, as interesting and also as somewhat or as very pathetic in their unmade-over states. Um, we were encouraged to feel sorry for them and to barrack for them in their quests to improve their lives through cosmetic surgery. I've argued that shows like The Swan are the quintessential examples of makeover culture because despite their dramatic reveals and endings where these perfectly formed new creatures are are exposed both to themselves and to their families. Despite those, what these shows are really all about is the process of development, um, the process of becoming, the actual labour that's involved in becoming better, and they're much more interested in that process than on this idea of completion that usually comes right in the last couple of minutes of the program. So I think that these shows teach us that everyone is in a permanent state of potential. They teach us that we all could always become something better. And one of the things we could become is princess. Becoming princess is a very old cultural fantasy. When the only women with power were members of the nobility or the aristocracy, the, the dream to become princess made perfect sense. It continues now as a series of metaphors for becoming something better and for escaping a disappointing or a dreary life. So here's Anne Hathaway, a princess of Hollywood, if you like, in before and after shots from the film The Princess Diaries, which was a contemporary retelling of the Cinderella story. And here's a kind of uber-feminine pedagogy that we submit our daughters to. I call it pink pedagogy. This is an ad for a princess school and it seems it's never too early to start wanting to be a princess and wanting to have a makeover. The myth of becoming princess is strongly connected to makeover culture and to its focus on processes of transformation. After all, what we're really interested in with Briar Rose, otherwise known as Sleeping Beauty, with Snow White and with Cinderella is the journeys that they undergo to become princess, to gain what is rightfully theirs. These stories are not about what kind of weddings they had or whether the prince was a good husband or how many children they produced, but about the trajectories of hardship that they follow in order to reach their happy endings. The stories are always about the becoming. They are never about the final result. And yet, these princesses have very unusual journeys. They're not on quests. They don't have to fight monsters. They never have to be in the least bit aggressive. Instead, their paths of becoming are made up of waiting, of being still, of remaining silent, and in fact, in the cases of Snow White and Briar Rose of actually being unconscious. These princesses-to-be are indeed rewarded for being completely static and passive. So what of contemporary princesses? Diana Spencer was born a minor aristocrat, so she wasn't strictly a commoner, 
but she was still meant to call her husband Sir until they married and she became the Princess of Wales. Her becoming Princess Path was an inversion of the ones that we know from, from traditional fairy tales. Her seemingly blissful wedding actually marked the beginning, not the end, of years of hardship, years of transformation. By the end, whoops. By the end, Diana was ironically actively involved in depicting herself as being alone, in need of rescue, miserable, searching and vulnerable. Silence is a big part of being a princess. Shakespeare's Cordelia, the good princess, and Leah's favourite daughter, is the silent one. Cordelia's lack of verbosity leads to her disinheritance and eventually to her death. But her silence in itself is never actually seen as a bad thing. It's only Leah's misunderstanding of it that is the bad thing. At the end of the play, towards the end of the play, cradling his dead daughter in his arms, Leah says, her voice was ever soft, gentle and low, an excellent thing in a woman. Diana got troublesome when she found her voice, daring to move from the shy, doe-eyed child bride to a more wily manipulator of the media, with almost feminist witticisms like, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded, and self-defining, although cheesy, statements such as, I'd like to be a queen in people's hearts, but I don't see myself being queen of this country. So hers was a Cinderella story inverted in terms of timelines, in terms of chronology, but also inverted because this princess had realised that keeping quiet, staying still and being passive were going to get her nowhere. Kate Middleton was known to palace staff as Weighty Katie because of her eight-year patient wait for the prince's proposal. During this time, she had her own sort of sleep in a glass coffin, being seen but not heard. When she first spoke publicly just a month or so ago, a writer in The Guardian said, it was almost as surprising as hearing the Mona Lisa speak. Kate has been reanimated by William's proposal and we have heard the voice of the image. It has come to life. There are many comparisons at the moment being made between Diana and Kate, uh, and they helped along greatly, of course, because Kate now wears Diana's totemic engagement ring. But I think that the cultural role of Kate is not to take up Diana's mantle and continue the soap opera, but instead to act as a stopper or a coda or an ending to the story that Diana started. Kate is a tame, acceptable, modern version of Diana, just independent enough, just meek enough, just quiet enough, just pretty enough. And crucially, I don't think we're going to see Kate transform in the public eye. Sharing the global makeover stage with Diana for many years was Michael Jackson, the king of pop. Both Jackson and Diana were hugely prominent examples of becoming in the public sphere and of transformation. Jackson's metamorphoses were ongoing, extreme, and they oscillated back and forth from child to adult, from black to white, from innocent boy to androgynous sexual being, from abused to abuser. 
sorry. Jackson and Diana may have been our most dramatic makeover citizens, but they were also both disaster stories. They died as the direct result of an ongoing quest to become something better, or at least to become happier, and I think they've come to represent makeover culture gone too far. Lady Gaga takes makeover culture to, to a new point where every appearance involves a new image. Her mantra is that monsters, she calls her fans her little monsters, can be anything and that change and metamorphosis are the only constants. And yet, unlike the makeover icons that came before her, unlike Diana and Jackson, we never see anything in progress with Gaga. She's a constant stream of perfectly formed new images. And Gaga effectively told us that she was coming to us fully formed when she audaciously called her first album Fame. And she played this idea out further with her amazing egg birth at the last Grammys, where she ha literally hatched out as a mature, in-control, performing adult, in control despite that hat that kept falling off. Um, Gaga is all surface. She's deliberately and adamantly without a personal life. She says she's Gaga all the time. She's also, I think, despite her constant image changes, quite mono-emotional or even non-emotional. And similarly, Kate Middleton was described in last week's Who Weekly by a palace... Almost palace official. Palace <laughs> by a palace official as fully baked. It's a really strange term, especially given the last paper about devouring. So as fully baked. The palace is pleased because this means she won't make trouble for them the way that the naive and troubled Diana did. But it also means, in terms of makeover culture, that Kate comes to us as a complete object. And what an object. The whitened green is always in place. With Kate, I don't think we'll ever see the rolling of the eyes, the crying in public, the flirting with paparazzi, the looking miserable, or even the display of a range of emotions that Diana treated us to. Middleton, like Gaga, is always in character, and she's a fait accompli, a complete package. She's mature at 10 years older than Diana was when she became princess, and she's controlled. There's no need for Diana's famous bulimia with this young woman who has been honing her gym body for 10 years. Makeover hasn't been left behind by these two new icons. I think it's just changed its tune slightly. For Gaga, makeover is a mantra and part of her persona. Constant becoming although it does seem to only apply to fabulous outfits, is her raison d'etre. She tweeted to her fans about her debut album, Monsters have six Grammy nominations and Billboard Award Artist of the Year. Thank you for your fighting for artistic freedom and self-invention. And of course, self-invention is one of the cornerstones of makeover culture. Middleton is becoming princess transforming from commoner to royalty, but in some significantly different ways to the princesses of fairy tales. There's no rescue here. She's the first woman royal to hold a university degree, and she's no wilting flower 
When William briefly dumped her in 2007, uh, supposedly on the advice of his father, uh, she took herself out to nightclubs and kept the smile intact. And of course, perhaps most importantly, Kate is not a virgin. She and William lived together and she had relationships before meeting him, as did he. So this is both a new and an old kind of princess, a contemporary sort of woman in the package, so far, of a very traditional, silent and mono-emotional princess. I suggest that Kate embodies a kind of tamed makeover culture, as does Gaga, despite Gaga's, all of Gaga's superficial excess. Okay, so I began by talking about the television show The Swan, which was all about rebirth and renewal and has been theorised that way by some wonderful feminist scholars. Um, and despite the, the dramatic reveals at the end of each show, what The Swan really narrativised and made visible was the process of becoming. Despite its great fame, despite its infamy, the show is not being made anymore. It just didn't get the ratings after the first couple of seasons. So what do we have in its place? Maybe Black Swan is the Swan's cultural nemesis or the Swan's cultural update, showing transformation as psychotic rather than as leading to happy endings. This movie is about metamorphosis, it's about the continual physical and emotional labour of improvement going horribly wrong and leading to madness and death. Makeover culture and transformation are beginning, if we take this movie as a, perhaps as a starting point, they are beginning to be represented as schizoid and even as evil. So that's the end of my talk. I've tried to identify what I see as a slight cultural turn by looking at figures who occupy a huge amount of media space and who've captured the public imagination. Whether uh, this, this cultural turn um, is something that's just happening within the paradigm of makeover culture or whether it's actually representing the beginning of a turn away from makeover culture, it's too easy to tell. Thank you. Uh, Meredith. Okay, so on to our uh, second uh, presentation, uh, this one by Sarah Gibson. Um, Sarah Gibson is the writer and director of Reenchantment, the interactive uh, documentary about the hidden meanings of fairy tales and the inspiration for this uh, symposium. She brings to her filmmaking her experience as a Jungian analyst in private practice in Sydney. Sarah is also a senior lecturer in media arts at the University of Technology, Sydney, where she lectures in documentary and supervises postgraduate students. Sarah's previous documentary work has explored the relevance of psychological ideas for contemporary culture. This includes... In the beginning, there was shopping and Born to Shop, uh, films about the, pleasure, the pleasures of, of, of shopping. Uh, her works include a three-part series, Myths of Childhood, examining how we think about childhood, and The Hundredth Room, 
exploring the inner landscape of grief. For the last five years, she's been immersed in the world of fairy tale interpretation. And the paper of her title today is The Shadow of the Slipper, Psychological Interpretations of Cinderella. Please welcome Sarah Gibson. Thanks, Con. Working on re-enchantment, I discovered that there were over a thousand versions of Cinderella, and Jack Sipes has recently um, suggested that um, there have been over 130 Cinderella films made in the... Um, okay. Oh, yep. Yep, thanks. Um, no, it's okay. I was curious about why Cinderella is currently the most popular fairy tale. What are the elements that make it psychologically satisfying? And it's a challenge to look at a story that we know so well. And um, this is particularly the case, I think, for Cinderella. And today I'd like to enter into the shadowy side of the story, the darker emotional terrains of incest, grief, hatred, envy and desire. But before I go there, I wanted to say something about psychological interpretation. I've illustrated the talk with images of visual artists, most of whom are in the Cinderella section of Reenchantment, and you can go and look at those images at your leisure. Um, Barb Creed um, spoke earlier in the earlier session about Red Riding Hood, quoting Bruno Bettelheim. And he had a groundbreaking study in 1976 called Uses of Enchantment. And I've actually taken his title for re-enchantment because I wanted to move our thinking about psychological interpretation on from Bettelheim. Although what he argued about fairy tales being able to confront the anxieties and inner demons and hostilities and fears and vulnerability of children, I think still holds. But there's been a lot of writing, mainly from a Jungian perspective, since Bettelheim, suggesting that fairy tales offer up psychological insights for adults to understand our own development, in particular to become aware of the way the unconscious is influencing the human psyche. We have stories at the back of our collective mind, and that's our way of making meaning from experience. And from the therapy room, I'm convinced that if we can link our uh, stories, um, to link our life stories to other stories, it's actually very helpful. And there's no doubt that people agree that fairy tales express their ideas in symbolic language. We're just debating really what the uh, symbols mean. And um, I'm very frustrated with the Freudian-only approach and um, so in a way re-enchantment is a sort of an antidote to the um, Bettelheim and I'm frustrated that people just look to Bettelheim when they want an interpretation and um, it seemed to me that it was very hard to find the other interpretations so that's the gap I think that re-enchantment's filling. Um, some people say well you psychologists you just read anything into a fairy tale and possibly that's true but it doesn't invalidate the interpretation just you should know where the interpretation's coming from. Um, one of the challenges I think of um, fairy tales is to let them resonate and I think that's what the speakers were doing about Red Riding Hood this morning 
and to somehow not leap into an interpretation but rather allow the poetics of the story and the mystery of the story to um, continue. Now, um, there are, if there are so many versions of Cinderella throughout the world, it's very hard to take one and work on it. But I think that what the session was doing earlier was taking multiple versions of Red Riding Hood and rubbing them up against each other. And in a way, I think that's useful also with Cinderella. And we have to say that a Cinderella story normally has a heroine of low status who achieves success. Uh, who's mistreated by her stepmother and stepsisters, but thanks to a shoe that's lost and rediscovered, uh, has success. And the story details a change to suit particular cultures. I was very um, interested to find an Egyptian version that says what happens to the courtesan Rhodopis when her sandal's stolen by an eagle while she's bathing in the waters of the Nile. There's also a Japanese manga version by Junko Mizuno, and here Cinderella worked as a waitress in her father's yakitori uh, restaurant. And she has to survive her father's death, her zombies, and the wild story goes on, and the prince is looking for her eyeball, not the slipper. <laughs> and we constantly refer to Cinderella in popular culture in the way that I, uh, Meredith's been talking about, about this idea of transformation, makeover, rags to riches, and uh, the search, of course, for material success. And um, this often takes us to the whole idea about finding the prince, finding the perfect partner, or in this case, the royal magnum treatment. Um, you would be familiar with the, um, this ad... Um, but in 1981, the New York writer Colette Dowling coined the term the Cinderella complex, and for this she was describing the personal and psychological dependency of women, the deep wish to be taken care of by others. And she suggests that women fear that if they develop fully, they'll end up alone, unloved and uncared for. And she saw this women's fear of independence as being a um, centuries-old uh, network of conditioning so Dowling states that, like Cinderella, women today are still waiting for something external to transform their lives. But I think it would be a mistake to think of Cinderella as just a passive heroine. Cinderella's driven by her desire to claim her rightful place in the world, although perhaps not in this ad. Makona, never settle for less than special. It would be, um, in the German version, Cinderella go, decides on her own to go to the ball. She uh, gets there, she returns on foot on her own schedule and she doesn't need a carriage. And she eludes both her, uh, the prince and the father and she demonstrates an incredible resourcefulness. So is it the fact that Cinderella does survive that makes the um, story so popular? And um, some people say that the story provides hope that those facing child abuse or overwhelming circumstances in their family have a possibility of overcoming their adversity. So let's look at this perspective. In days when women frequently died in childbirth, having a stepmother and stepsisters was not unusual. And not all stepmothers were cruel, but Cinderella's story might be true at a time when it was very difficult for girls 
without a dowry to marry, so stepmothers often looked after the interests of their own daughters at the expense of their stepdaughters. And I do see the value of this story to describe dejection, hopelessness, fears and vulnerability of the person who suffered the tyranny at the hands of the wicked mother, stepmother and the reality of cruel siblings. And when I hear stories in the therapy room and people who identify with the Cinderella story, these experiences are definitely there. In the late 1990s, uh, two psychologists, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, claimed that stepchildren are more likely to be abused and neglected and murdered or mistreated than children living with their biological um, parents. And they called this the Cinderella complex. And this claims hotly debated, and rightly it should be, because we only have to think of children who are loved by their step-parents and abused by their biological parents to know that this claim isn't true. But somehow Cinderella's experience of abuse at the hands of her stepmother tells us something about being an unwanted child. But what, why is the father blind to all that's happening with the daughter? Why does the father uh, not help her and protect her? Why does he let the stepmother and stepsisters get away with it? In other words, does he contribute to her abuse by absenting himself from the daughter's side? Now, Maria Tata, um, the fairy tale scholar, has shown that there are as many stories where it's the father who's the origins of the problems for Cinderella, not just the stepmother. And that's interesting. So we think of stories like Donkey Skin and Alalura, where it's the father's erotic attachment to Cinderella um, and it, wanting an incestuous relationship with her that causes her to be degraded to a, the status of a domestic servant. And perhaps the father's desire for the daughter is part of the reason why the stepmother uh, is so angry. Bettelheim would see it as that the daughter's having erotic fantasies of replacing the father in uh, the mother in her father's affections but I think again that's one of those versions of the Freudian interpretation not taking account of the reality of child sexual abuse and Marina Warner says of course that the wicked fathers gradu gradually drop from view in the fairy tale tradition now we know about the Chinese version of Cinderella from the Tang dynasty and mothers were required, and they say that perhaps the Cinderella story had some role in um, the later obsession with tiny feet. And mothers were required and forced to bind their daughter's feet, often at the age of about six or seven. And then she would only ever uh, walk with, or at best with difficulty after that. And a mother carried out the practice, or perhaps a grandmother, so that the daughter would fit into society and find a husband. You'd be familiar with Adeline Yen Ma's story about the cruelty, the intergenerational cruelty uh, of um, Chinese culture. But there's been an, um, a Jungian Shirley Ma who's written a book about Cinderella who's talking about really using bound feet as a metaphor in the Cinderella story for thinking about the ways in which... Um, there's a binding in women's lives where they are trying to fit the shape of somebody that somebody else wants for them and that they're not standing on their own two feet. And so it's working with that metaphor of bound feet. But sibling rivalry is probably the thing that we most recognise from the story, that Cinderella's pushed down and degraded by her stepsisters, asked to do the dirtiest work, does it well, gets no credit for it, and only more is demanded of her. 
The ugly stepsisters aren't necessarily ugly, except in their personalities. So why are they actually so awful? And I played something from Reenchantment about it, about what that perhaps their attacks on Cinderella have to do with um, their envy of her. Now, what's the difference between jealousy and envy? In jealousy, we want to get rid of the rival, whereas in envy, we seek to defeat the rival, not out of love for a third person, but because we begrudge the rival anything that they possess. The stepsisters' envious attacks on Cinderella are on her very being. So being in the ashes, going cheerfully about her duties, dressed in rags, the suffering servant, has an unmistakable allure about her that the envious sisters clearly lack. They want to damage, degrade, spoil the goodness of the envied one, Cinderella. Now Cinderella knows she's uh, innocent, she feels dejected and worthless, and on top of this the stepmother is also scapegoating her. So no matter what the Cinderella does, um, they... Uh, will still attack her. And I think that if you've ever experienced being the object of envy, you know that no matter what you do, pumping up the other person, deflecting the comment, whatever, it doesn't work. That one of the things is you can't be nice and think that that will improve things. It just intensifies it. So there's an annihilating envy that Cinderella actually faces. Now, we can't go into a whole lot about envy, but we can um, try and understand that in some way Cinderella has to survive these attacks. She can't survive by just being good, by her long-suffering silence, her piety, her patience, and that is not going to work. So before I leave the stepsisters, I want to say, do they deserve their punishment? This being pecked, they're having their eyes pecked out by birds in the Grimm's version. Perot thought that uh, Cinderella should be compassionate. But is it actually the revenge that makes the story satisfying as well? And it's quite mild, Grimm's punishment, compared to other cultures. An Indonesian Cinderella forces her stepsister into a cauldron of boiling water, has the body cut up, pickled, and sent to the girl's mother as salt meat for her next meal. A Filipino variant shows stepmother and stepdaughters pulled, pulled apart by wild horses. But something that is true to the Cinderella story is, that, is loss. Cinderella's mother's died, she's grieving, she's lost her place in her father's affections and in her household. And so looked at from another perspective, Cinderella's the story about how you grieve these losses. Cinderella's name evokes her clo- and her clothes evoke cinders and ashes, and she's um, classically mourning. Now, there's a parallel here between the Cinderella story and the duty of the Vestal Virgins in ancient, ancient Rome. So, a girl was selected for this honour when she was between six or ten years old, and um, roughly the age we think of as Cinderella. So the Vestal Virgin was meant to be a guardian of the hearth and absolutely pure, and if she did well in the role, she achieved a good marriage. So thus, innocence, purity and being guardian of the hearth are coming from a very ancient tradition. And remembering that fairy tales don't express feelings directly, they use images, Cinderella obviously has a strong uh, depressed part of herself that is symbolised in the ashes. And from the therapy room, we know that Cinderella's have experienced early loss or abandonment. Now, the hearth is also a symbol for mother. Sometimes the mother dies but leaves Cinderella a calf, a hazel twig, a date tree or a fish 
and she's abandoned, but somehow she's able to hold on to the positive aspect of um, the mother through these objects. So remembering the positive, being connected up to the good, is obviously an important part in Cinderella's story. But dealing with the stepmother, that's another story. We could go into why is the stepmother so uh, mean and horrible and there's something in her story. But I'm interested in the fact that Cinderella, the stepmother's very useful to Cinderella because she gives her jobs. And one of these jobs is separating the lentils from separating the grains from the ashes or separating the lentils out. And this is an archetypal, mythic a part of the story uh, where I think it's a sort of process of discrimination, sorting out the good from the bad, sorting out the bad mother from the good mother, sorting out, being able to hold a sort of tension and complexity within herself. So in a way, one of the things that the stepmother's doing is forcing Cinderella to stand up for what she wants. Now, there's been a lot of emphasis on the role of the fairy godmother, but in a way that since Disney and a lot of the earlier versions, there isn't a fairy godmother. And I sort of think of it, the fairy godmother, as perhaps the part of Cinderella that she's got to um, bring to bear to realise her own desires. And if we think of um, Cinderella's story as all part of the one person, and this is where you come to a more Jungian approach, then the psychological interpretation of Cinderella becomes available to us all. So... Um, I think envy is very useful. It puts us in touch with what we want. But if it gets to reside in a shadow aspect of our personality, it poisons all our interactions. So there is a challenge for Cinderella to face the envious part of herself, where she lets herself be bullied by the stepmother and stepsisters. And when she does that, she's free from wanting anything for herself. So one of the uh, issues, I think, in the Cinderella story is to be able to, Cinderella, to be able to have a sense that she is capable of having something. And contemporary Cinderella's, um, if you can use the, the um, way of sort of hiding oneself by not asking or not thinking one can have anything. And uh, envy, perhaps, uh, is one of the keys, being able to understand envy, to find the transformation that's in the Cinderella story. So there's a lot of internal work to um, being Cinderella and there's grieving the loss, building a relationship with the internal good or the positive mother, discriminating good from bad, confronting the ways in which um, we think of ourselves as a victim, standing up to the cruelty of the stepmother inside who puts down and says, I'm nobody, and in the face of the internal stepmother and stepsister's attacks, be able to find a part of, herself, part of the Cinderella self which maybe is the aggressive or dark aspects that have been split off and are now attacking uh, Cinderella internally. So she does take the initiative. She gets in touch with her own desires. She stands up for what she wants, her own pleasure, in the face of stirring up the envy and anger of others. Now, is the proof of success that she gets the prince? I don't think so. Um, but yet that romantic proof is we still think that the, the answer is in the relationship, but not necessarily. But there is something about the, the scene of the slipper and being the prince recognising her. And one thing that I was interested in is 
why, why does she keep going back to the kitchen? I mean, she's got to the ball, she's had a good time. Why does she keep going back to the kitchen all those times? And I think it partly is how long it takes for us to really consolidate change within ourselves. And she obviously wants to be seen for who she is, good and bad, not the romantic ideal. And so it is important she's recognised by the prince. And um, I think that we could think of the slipper as uniting Cinderella with something of herself that she has lost. So I'll just leave you with this clip. Can we have the volume up? So much as step one foot out the door. And Cinderella and the prince lived happily ever after. You, you know that this is just a, a fairy tale, right, sweetheart? And things don't always happen like this in real life. I just think you should know that now. Again. Thanks very much. Okay, and on to our... Uh Third, uh, third paper uh, this afternoon. Uh, the third speaker is uh, Peter McNeil. Uh, Peter is a professor of uh, design history at University of Technology, Sydney, and also professor of, uh, of fashion studies at uh, Stockholm uh, University. Uh, he's trained as an art historian, and his research encompasses design and cultural history with a focus on comparative perspectives. He's currently working on 18th century English and French fashion and the 20th century intermediaries working between fashion, object and interior design. And Peter's paper title this afternoon is The Horror of Heavy Feet or Why Cinderella Must Have Her Light Shoe. Okay, so welcome, Peter. Counterintuitive. <laughs> okay. This is that near curiosity, a shoe designed by a woman, Vivian Westwood. It comes from the cover of Shoes, a history from sandals to sneakers, which I co-edited with an economic historian, Giorgio Riello, in 2006, and it's out in paper soon. Our book opened with a survey of the place of the shoe in historical and cultural studies. It concluded with my essay, The Male Cinderella, in which I ponder the matter of 20th century male makers, women consumers, and the gendered division about lightness and transparency which has come to dominate high-end luxury shoes for women in the West. This essay was motivated by the pochoir print from the fashion magazine Gazette du Bon Temps, 1913, in which a very vague Prince Charming seems more interested in his own fur-trimmed carriage boots and Poiré-esque costume than Cinderella's slipper. He's actually in drag. It's not so much the skirt, which is what ballet dancers wore in the 17th century, but he's wearing women's carriage boots. These are some by Pinet from about 1875. Her shoe replicates the real fashion of women's fashions of that very year, 1913, with its high vamp echoing his outturned wrist. 
Somebody gave me this print when I was 18, so it did lots of moral damage, I think. <laughs> Fairy tales can be subjected to studies ranging from psychoanalytic semiotics to role model criticism, from multicultural readings to Jungian analysis or Oedipal difficulties. Ben Rubenstein, writing in 1956, described the attraction of fairy tales to, quote, be the egocentonic character of the libidinal aspiration. Today I'd like to take up the aim of Alan Dundas, who in the essay Projection in Folklore, A Plea for Psychoanalytic Semiotics, in 1976, argued that there's always, quote, an interrelationship of historical event to folkloristic projective fantasy. So this 1920s high fashion print alludes in a deeply ironic way to the famous 17th century telling of the tale of the girl who tended and even lay down in the disfiguring ashes, Cendrillon, which just means ash girl, Cinderella, who is half cat in Italy, 1636, or Grimm's Ashen Puttel in 1812. It's not surprising that Disney was not interested in making a film called Cockroach Sandrina, one of the hundreds of Italian variants on these high versus low oppositions. The image from the famed Gazette du Bonton, a hand-finished luxury fashion magazine, is right on trend with the shoes by Jan Tourney for Rita Leidig, who, as well as the antique lace seen here, famously had one made which survives of hummingbird wings. Here we should remember also the linguistic slippage that permitted the possible mistranslation by Perrault of the French for a type of fur, vert, V-A-I-R, the bluish grey and white fur of a squirrel prized for ornamental use since medieval times, and the possible substitution of vert, glass, V-E-R-R-E. The fur is frequently mentioned by writers in describing the costly dress of kings, nobles and prelates, it's represented in heraldry by a series of small shields placed close together, alternately white and blue. In heraldry, it means a kind of fur or doubling consisting of diverse little pieces, argent and azure, resembling a bell glass. Perhaps this is the source of the glass confusion. Cox, in her 1892 study of 345 versions of Cinderella, found only six instances of glass slippers. Grimm used a golden shoe. Disney's version is, according to Naomi Wood, the only one in which the shoe is actually broken, accentuating the villainy of the stepmother and staging the conflict much more around stepmother than sibling rivalry. But I'd like to suggest that an immediate post-war Cinderella, so popularised by Disney, 1949-50, really needed a glass shoe and that its desirability, fear of loss and triumph of reacquisition says a great deal about class, beauty and fashion ideals over a very long period of time from the early modern up to the post-war era. That is, from the 17th century to the 1950s, a certain shoe dream trajectory can be unpacked that's historical as well as mythopoetic. It's a type of story from heavy heels to light feet. Shoes have both a personal and private nature that's been preserved even very much in a global media society like ours. Shoes are not just packages of signs, meanings and messages. They're products that acquire certain shapes, colours and forms through process of creation, application of technologies, choice of materials and the understanding of consumer markets. Uh, this is uh, one of my favourite images, uh, uh, probably one of the best non-political 18th century caricatures that brings together dress and the body. It's called Top and Tail, and it's got a false attribution, Miss, Miss Heel and Mr Periwig. And uh, we can 
we also have from the, the 1930s, from a fetish magazine, a different take on, on the um, complex erotics of shoes. So in this case, the joke is partly about the fact that you enter a shoe, like, like penetrative sex, and many of you are, of course, aware that there's a long tradition of um, fetishistic association with, with high heels themselves. Shoes, more than some realms of sartorial taste, have produced global names and international brands. As shoes are recognisably one of the most powerful but also most complex items of apparel, the relationship between wearer and producer is often portrayed as a very intimate one. Carrie Bradshaw, whom we just saw in Sex and the City, is a case in point. Although her relationship with the designer Blarnick is surely not personal, her passion for Blarnick shoes makes the designer a character who appears intimate in the series. Jimmy Choo also appears in her imagination as the type we have coined the male Cinderella maker. General attitudes towards inhabiting public space in the West and even walking over time are manifest in this artefact of fashionable footwear. In the mid to late 18th century, so just after Perrault wrote his a 1697 famous version of Cinderella, patterns, which is P-A-T-T-E-N-S, clogs and other devices to keep feet above the dirty and wet ground level fell from favour. So you will see a, two types of patterns on the screen there. And ease of mobility began to increase very much in Western Europe with the first paved streets and public schemes of lighting pioneered by the English. The changes in managing such a simple act as walking were negotiated in different ways in the public sphere by men and women of the elites. At the beginning of the 18th century, male and female shoes began to appear very different. In the 18th century, as in the present day, a gender-related distinction of footwear filtered into production. Contemporary descriptions of the boot and shoe trade underlined the difference between lady shoemakers and men's shoemakers. The production of these shoes implied different skills, as the products were essentially different. Men wore more or less functional footwear, not very dissimilar to modern shoes. They were entirely made of leather, and this allowed resistance to rain, mud, and bad weather. Women's shoes had uppers made of fabric, silk, satin, cloth, or brocade. Only the lower ranks of women wore leather shoes of a form similar to men's. An 18th century commentator wrote that leather shoes were only worn by, quote, women destined to hard work such as women of the countryside, not even by the domestics from urban centres. The solution to damaging the fabric uppers was to wear either clogs or the patterns that we saw before that you strapped over a shoe. Mulhern, in his analysis of the Cinderella motif, notes that scholars have tried to understand the small size of the shoe and linked it variously to foot binding, Mideastern luxury, but they note that the shoe is often not elaborate in the myths, nor is its small size always crucial in some Chinese versions of the tale. Scholars have puzzled over the fact that, quote, the nature of the object which is lost and found by chance, which is different in different cultures, has been chosen without reference to sexual symbolism or betrothal ceremonial. The shoe for the modern Cinderella is as much about its size as its sexual suggestion. This does not surprise me. Both Western men and women were meant to have small feet to be elegant and beautiful, and there are many tales today of contemporary Italian men who fit their sizes one size too small. Large feet were barbaric, and the skill of an 18th and 19th century shoemaker was in creating a shoe and also a boot for men that made one's foot look smaller. This made individual shoe reputations. In the Disney film, the slipper is as long as the Grand Duke's index finger. Cinderella herself is anti-grotesque. Her body shows no signs of lines, wrinkles, or even what we call toe cleavage. And she has that beautiful attribute, a tiny foot. Let's just be reminded of the 
attributes of tiny foot, feet, with a few late 18th century caricatures by Cruikshank and Gilray. These refer to the public notoriety of the Duke and Duchess of York and some speculation about the nature of their union. So, as I said, the history of footwear, and especially women's footwear, is dominated by devices to keep feet above the ground. This differentiation is important because it reveals contrasting patterns of consumption and production related to gender. The eroticism and the pleasure of lightness enjoyed by both elite men and women into the 19th and early 20th century cannot be underestimated. It's something we now tend to forget in our age of trainers and hybrid shoe technologies. This is a lovely painting by Boyi called Pay Passe, You Must Pay to Cross, and it's about the, the well-off protecting their shoes as they cross a muddy street. We might now think about the connection of the object of study, the shoe, to some of the kitsch debates that also very much circulate around a genre such as Disney. If the intellectually purist is suspicious of shoes, even more so is fashion per se. Shoes remain the Cinderella of fashion. The woman's shoe as a kitsch bauble and vulgar anti-modern excess is always hovering around the brim. I like very much this surrealist chair, which was made for a surrealist exhibition in the 1930s. The wrinkled stocking activates this as bodily and grotesque, and it's clearly not the leg of a maiden. So it only works as a visual joke with the the wrinkle around the knee. Fashion stylistics, uh, dressing and sartorial change uh, in the past were not incidental things within everyday life. They were everyday life. But the trivial nature of shoes remains more than a passing feature. This is probably due to a certain rigidity of modernist thought and design practice, as well as the rationalist impulse of the second half of the 20th century. And I like very much this extraordinarily kitsch object, which I tore from an airline magazine on an American internal flight several years ago. Shoes get mixed with also a certain moralism, as seen here in this image of inappropriate aid, in which high heels have been sent to refugee women in Somalian refugee camps. So basically, shoes just, they have a bad rap. They, they do everything wrong. The difficult character of shoes is not just the result of their size or their spatial position. Perhaps unique of all garments, shoes are independent from the physical body. And here we have a, a piece of art by Susan Cutts called White Stilettos from 2001. They have a shape that they can keep even when the wearer is absent. Most clothes can only be displayed through the use of props, such as mannequins, but the shoes themselves are self-standing. This peculiar nature explains why they often stand for something else that's not physically present. At the time that Cinderella was popularised in late 19th century English versions, most country children had no shoes. Until recent times, the lack of shoes was a fact of life even in the relatively prosperous Western world, and to be barefoot in the West meant that all avenues of life were closed. In the Veneto, at the time of the 19th century telling of Cinderella, many people gained their first pair of shoe on their wedding day and wore them just before they entered the church. It was a sign of poverty for children in the West to wear hand-down shoes, and one of the first things dropped by the Red Cross after World War II were shoes for the very young. So there's a kind of uh, association between bare feet and poverty that's almost entered our genetic code, and it informs these notions we have today about acquisitiveness through shoes. The cliché wants the women in the audience here to be mad for shoes. The Amel de Marcos inside you wants to burst forth in front of the shoemaker's window, like this image of Ferragamo. This is often taken as a kind of index of the best example of the irrational female consumer. 
Yet the inferior social and cultural position imposed on women for centuries is, re is refused by engaging with the acquisition of one of the most important symbols of movement, richness and worth, shoes. If fashion is trivialised as both an artefact and as a social force, then the shoe is even more likely to be condemned as evidence of waste or fetishised. Recall that it was Marie Antoinette's shoe, not her dress, nor her headdress, that was meant to have been saved from the guillotine. One slipper only was retained, an index of her true status and grace, despite execution. So, in the, in the last um, quarter of the century, there's been a tremendous shift in research carried out on shoes. Oops. Um, can we get it back to the beginning? So footwear, you could say, is no longer the forgotten Cinderella of dress, but it's an integral part of the study of fashion. This is uh, the result of wider research on the topic, but also of important changes in the way shoes are understood. And since... Sorry about this. I have to view them again. Oh. Is it possible for you to put it on the... There's an ID magazine. Uh, Postmodernism and minimalism have proposed new visions of fashion and the body. They've underlined the fragmentary nature of fashion. Uh, there's much more notion now of, new, of ideas based on the disintegration of dress, unusual and clashing combinations, and the conception of the body as composed of single body parts or details rather than a whole unified figure or silhouette. And these theoretical changes have had a great impact on the way footwear is represented and also advertised by the media. I think the, the, the cultural and social complexity of shoes is, all, is both intellectually constructed, that's why I talked about the kitsch debate, but it's also the result of their physical nature. The coat that you're wearing or your hat or your dress or your trousers, you can turn inside out. You can look at the construction and observe it and study it. By contrast, shoes would have to be dismembered in order to understand their inner workings. It's perhaps for this reason that shoes remain one of the, one of the least understood components of modern dress. True for both the men's brogue and the woman's stiletto, which still cannot be made in fully mechanised processes, as well as the designer's sneaker, whose structure and inner workings are not evident from the exterior. Hence, the mystery of Cinderella's slipper is completely appropriate. Now, of course, both genders wear shoes, but they've developed different relationships to them. I took this photograph on my first visit to London in the 80s. It's from Soho. This could be you too, no matter what your age or shape transformations creating beautiful women worldwide. Of course, uh, the wearing of high heels is central to the staging of a new gender identity for transgender. The most celebrated shoe designers of the 20th century have helped to shape this gendered rhetoric and focus their energy mostly on women and women's shoes. But here's a good example. How, who could not like this beautiful artefact? It's for Princess Liliana of Belgium, the second wife of the former King Leopold III, black duchess satin with silver kid, kid edges and a bow formed with two diamante encrusted balls. The height of the heel and the possibility of ornament in women's shoes are seen as providing very creative impetus to design as well as better profit. But for many centuries, shoes used to be about class as well as about gender. During the 20th century, century class and gender in shoes merged into a notion of what I call class gender, and this gender was female, served her expensive shoes in surroundings of hushed luxury. This is a painting by Guillaume, the shoe, shoe salon at the shoe shop, 1927, in the Bader Museum. It's a very funny image, as you can see, because it disrupts the Cinderella syndrome. Um, 
The history of shoes also reveals that the past distinction between utilitarian and disposable shoes has disappeared in, in our time. By disposable shoes, I mean the type of ephemeral shoe that features in 18th and early 19th century erotic art depicting indoor or fantasy spaces with mules and slippers. And here we see the lesbian erotics by Aki de Verrier, a very famous French illustrator from about 1830, of assisting a woman into a slipper. And here we see uh, a man's not a woman's slipper, a chinoiserie slipper from about 1820. We need to recall that men were wearing, rich men were wearing these artefacts as well until about the, the mid-19th century. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that men's feet became de-eroticised, simply their appeal was more strictly linked to the rhetoric of heaviness from the military boot to the macho, macho sado boot of Tom of Finland. Um, while men's shoes continue to rely on traditional materials like heavy leather, preferably black, women's shoes have become the terrain of continuous experimentation from poor materials such as canvas rope or even glass, as we see here in this Ferragamo from 1938. So I'm just going to conclude with the, uh, the, mat, the case of a match from heaven between the mental, emotional aspect of shoes and their visual and aesthetic nature. That is the myth of invention and inventiveness that surrounds shoes. The shoe designer as artist or creator is not only linked to the making of unique pieces, but also to the creation of ideas that transcend the physical nature of shoes. So here we see the, shoe, the cover for Shoemaker of Dreams, 1957, by Salvatore Ferragamo, his autobiography, in which he underlies, underlines the completely abject and socially unacceptable position of a cobbler in a small Italian village in the 1910s. He writes, to be a shoemaker was a disgrace. It would bring the family into disrepute. The low status of the shoemaker before the notion of high fashion is something that's been underplayed by subsequent generations of designers. Working all night like Cinderella, he gets ahead within a Victorian notion of heroism and rises on his own methods, on his own merits. There are many other examples of these poor men, kind of male Cinderellas, who transcend a lowly trade to become famous. They include André Perugia, who was the son of a cobbler, Charles Joudon, and Jimmy Chu, who is from a modest man from Penang. And we also see um, another narrative in Ferragamo's life was an ambition to create what he called an invisible shoe, a type of Cinderella shoe, an active fusion between foot and footwear, between nature and artefact. And it's this theme of lightness, rhetoric of lightness that I've been talking about that's so significant within shoe history. This is a, a beautifully illustrated by a 1960s example made in Britain by Rain, who were the royal shoemakers, a clear vinyl boot with a solid vamp decorated with silver rhinestones from the early 60s. This translucency of plastic shoes borrowed the theatricality and ideas from the cinema of the 60s and mixed camp glamour, the visibility of the wearer and the invisibility of the shoe. The Cinderella, Cinderella myth, so dominant in footwear history, is also linked to the relative stasis of women's feet. You can see here, a Gloria Swanson's feet will never age, Ferragamo noted wistfully in his autobiography. The face and figure may show the telltale signs of advancing years. The feet remain youthful and beautiful, he continued. A women's stockinged feet do have a resemblance to shoe lasts in the black and white photography of his era. Both Ferragamo and Blahnik write in ecstatic tones of the beauty of this undamaged foot, a foot uncorrupted by civilization and bad shoes. Ferragamo said his favourite foot was Mary Pickford's, the joints inside her feet are like a baby. They are the most perfect feet in the world. Blahnik, of course, prefers the feet of young Sicilian men, worn smooth by walking barefoot, barefoot in the sand.
So when Giorgio and I were writing our book, we always wanted to step out in high heels, but not literally. We did so through this special white mule with a birdcage stiletto heel, now in the Bartoshoe Museum. It summarises the idea of the downtrodden and isolated maker, accompanied by his bird companion, transformed to the international and erudite shoe designer. It also plays with some of the ideas we've heard today about the encasing of the female owner and the possibility of new transparent open futures for fashion. There's a wonderful photograph of Ferragamo peering through the crystal sole of one of his shoes, like a lens of the camera. Surely here he becomes both the prince and the male Cinderella who creates and confirms magical identity. No, he writes, it will not break as you walk. He imagined a shoe future in which there was a wardrobe of shoes which consisted of just one shoe, a type of magic Cinderella shoe. She will be able to buy the uppers in any style and design and she will own a wardrobe which might otherwise have been far beyond her purse, he writes. So it's not surprising that the Cinderella of Disney's creation in 1949-50 did not require the archaic clasped form of a slipper made or lined in fur, denoting a very old-fashioned type of luxury. Instead, she required one that was transparent and marked by light modern elegance, the anti-grotesque and the contemporary ideal. Thank you. Okay, so we have uh, ample time now to, uh, to open up to a, uh, a discussion. Um, I believe there are a couple of roving uh, microphones for, uh, for, uh, for questions. And it's really hard to see people from here. <laughs> have you? Okay. So, thank you. Hi, um, this is a question for Meredith. Um, I'm just wondering, you were talking about um, makeover culture and how um, the becoming is more important than what you actually become. And I'm actually really interested in celebrity pregnancies and celebrity motherhood. And I'm just wondering whether you see the sort of um, the new sort of obsession or um, what's the word? focus on celebrity pregnancy as a new way that the becoming becomes more important than actually having the child, and not just with celebrities, but with pregnancy as a, as a phenomenon, um, that it seems to be more about the actual pregnancy than actually having the baby and then motherhood? Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, is this working? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that uh, pregnancy... Well, in, you know, pregnancy is like the, the ultimate indicator of becoming um, and also of producing... Um, and I think you know the whole um, the whole yummy mummy. Um, what would you call it? It's not a syndrome, but it's a movement, I guess. And the whole way that the pregnancy has become um, incredibly fashionable with a whole lot of industries based around it. Yeah, it's very much about becoming, and there does seem to be more um, interest in celebrities pregnant bodies, but then also in their regained slim bodies post-pregnancy than there is in the fact that they have also become mother. Yeah. And a question up the back. Uh, yes, just a comment for uh, Meredith, just in terms of um, when you were saying that so many fairy tale heroines are silent and passive and waiting. Um, 
And there seems to be a lot of modern interpretations that try to uh, counter that and make heroines very active and whatnot. But um, it's actually interesting that if you go back further past the Grimm's into older Italian and French tales, people like um, authors like Straparola, Basile, and especially Dolnoy, um, you have a lot of these really independent and active heroines. So it's interesting that it's more like a, um, a cycle. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that at all. Yeah, I think Sarah could probably... Uh, sorry, I can't see you. Can you put your hand up? Oh, hi. Um, I think Sarah could talk about this as well. And it was, you know, clear in Sarah's talk that that there are many, many pre-Grimm and, and especially pre-Disney um, fairy stories, and we could also say post-Disney fairy stories, where the, the heroines don't wait. They, they rush out and uh, get their own thing. I guess, you know... I always find those stories a little bit disappointing because they, well, certainly the contemporary versions, because they're still looking for the for the final result being um, a, an, a union with the prince, um, and the the sort of action that our contemporary uh, fairy tale heroines do. Um, I find uh, almost trite. It's almost like that's what nice girls do now, actually. It's like Kate Middleton goes to the gym, you know, and she's a really good skier. Um, I'm not convinced by it. Yeah. Um, Maybe Sarah wants to say. I think I'm more interested in um, not literalising the story. Like, I think what's happened is a literalisation of the getting the prince or of making the marriage. And I don't actually... I think sometimes they're just sort of neat and tidy endings for a sort of a process of change that the fairy tale character undergoes. And so if we talk about the prince in Cinderella, like, there's no love story there. Like, it's just, like, he's a bit... um, you know, he doesn't notice the blood oozing from the uh, foot of the stepsisters. Like, he's not really clued in much. And I really do think that you have to think about it symbolically in a way that perhaps that idea that um, Cinderella is coming into her own power or her own authority by reconnecting with that slipper and being recognised for who she is, like presenting herself really as she is, uh, rather than the glamorous... Um, makeover heroine that perhaps that's the a sort of a way of thinking about those endings and perhaps we're kind of terribly worried about those um, passive endings because of the effect of Disney Um, but I think it's great you're mentioning the other fairy tale authors and there certainly are are different sorts of activities that the fairy tale characters um, are engaged in but for where I sit it's all about a story you can see it as a story about an individual. So I'm taking it to be the story within the one person. And I find that quite satisfying because I think that this is the way in which fairy tales differ from myths. Myths are about a culture. Fairy tales are very much about the individual. So um, psychologically, I'm not worried. Um, I'm more worried about princess culture from the point of view of, um, you know, if I had a daughter at this point in time, I'd be more worried about the celebrity princess culture. 
Um, but that's a different question, I think. Question up here. Hi, um, I have a question for Sarah. I was very interested in this talk and the previous talk, how you talked about the, um, the fairy tales and their origins and true forms. What do you think about the fairy tales today that are getting watered down or made more safe for children? I know I grew up with the stones in the belly of the werewolf and things like that in Red Riding Hood, but my younger cousins grew up with um, almost more happier tales and less risk. What do you think is the risk for them in terms of the symbols and, yeah... Well, I think that everyone encounters the dark and if um, it's sort of like what Barb said this morning, I think, that if people aren't encountering the dark in the stories, they'll be looking for somewhere um, to be able to understand experiences and feelings um, that they've got no language for. I mean, if the stories are our way of coming to make meaning from experiences that otherwise, you know, we're lost in really. If we don't have those stories, then I think we've got to find other ways to connect to them. But I, um, and I think that children do, they seek those stories and they'll be seeking them in the games environment, they'll be seeking them in other places. But personally, I mean, I find the sanitised stories really boring. And, um, but I understand that those parents who are reading the stories are really, they get worried when the 17th time they're having to say, you know, that she was killed by something, you know, I mean, the, the violence in them. I, I can understand from a parental point of view, but from a point of view of satisfaction in the dimension of the story, the flattening out of them, the sanitising of them, I mean, what's the point really? Thank you. One, uh, ah, there and then further front, yep. I just wanted to ask a question because of the, the visuals that were presented during, uh, I think, um, the first session. I'm not sure, sorry, but the, um, the idea that we have fairy tales but the, the, the subtext of the images you showed are also about that, that point Sarah's just made about the um, celebrity princess because when we read those images, we read that, you know, Drew Barrymore is in Enchantment or a film about a princess and she's been through hell in her real life and we know this. So we read that as Drew Barrymore's story or Anne Hathaway who was involved with some rogue or, or uh, Eva Green who was transformed by being in a James Bond film. So at what point do we, we separate the, the fairy tale and the celebrity and, and, these, and, you know, what does this mean for our contemporary form of narrative fairy tale? That's the first part. And the other is, do we ever um, have that kind of point during a, the development of stories where we create brand new fairy tales from contemporary times? Can we do that, given the long tradition? Is it possible to create a brand new fairy tale? Do you want to ask talk about the first part? Yeah. Uh, I think the answer to how do we separate um, the kind of transformations and rise, say, from rags to riches of celebrities and then those same stories that they actually play out, if they're actors or whatever, is that we actually don't do it anymore. Um, it, it's as simple as that. We, we are very interested in both the public and the... both the public, private and performative lives of our celebrities and 
even to the degree where now if we're talking about a character in a film, we're more likely to refer to that character by the actor's name than by the character's name if it's a well-known actor. So there's... I, th I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I know that some actors get very upset about it, uh, but but I think that with, for example, a performer like Michael Jackson, who whose stage performances really melded in many ways into his life performances, um, you know, he was he was possibly uh, the the um, pioneer of this kind of um, you know, bringing these two areas together. So I, I don't think that um, separating them is something anyone's really interested in. In terms of new fairy stories, I mean, I do believe that there's a whole vast area of um, writing of people who are writing new versions, new stories. And I think that's what contemporary fiction is doing. And I think if we were to think of um, people like Angela Carter, people like Margaret Atwood, you've got new stories. And I think constantly we're producing new stories that still have some of the fairy tale element, which is the surprising element, the magical element, the sense of deep mystery that's in the stories, the stories that speak to psychological change. To my mind, we're, that, that's already happening and some people here will be engaged in that process, I'm sure. So I think the tradition of reworking the tales visually or in story is very alive and well. OK, yeah, question down, the, down here. No, we'll get but, the And yeah. um, just a wondering, thinking about how sanitised the fairy tales are now, and as a parent my kids had fairy, had stories read every night, if not more. I'm wondering if historically these fairy tales that were probably an oral tradition, were they recounted to the children as frequently as we would recount uh, favourite fairy tale stories today? And if that has any influence on the degree of sanitisation. So, for example, if... Um, if I had a daughter who was into Cinderella, I could read Cinderella, she could watch Cinderella, she could listen to an audiobook of Cinderella, which is quite intense in getting that message across. Compared to sitting round a fire with grandparents, I suppose, and hearing the story and requesting it. I mean, I think that, that is interesting that... Um, they're more accessible to a child themselves to, to search out and to have the experience of the stories. I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, I can't answer for the oral tradition about how often a child might have been in the corner of the room and heard a story, which when somebody probably thought they were already asleep in the corner. Um, so, um, but it is in a kind of an interesting question about agency that um, children have. Um, I don't know. I, I tend to think, though, that we have to remember that the children's... We're really speaking, in this instance, about um, the tradition of fairy stories as children's literature, and so we're talking about the 1800s on. Like, there's a big wealth of uh, 
time of stories and the oral tradition and mythic stories before then. So, you know, it's hard, you know, it's like chalk and cheese, really. So there's the pre-children's literature phase and then there's the children's literature. So we'd have to take that into account as well. Let's just say something. Yeah. Yes, that's important to remember that the, the Perrault version from the late 17th century, which is, which is popularised a lot later, was really directed at adults and it was uh, written by him at the same time as he was very fashionable to like oriental themes and other exotic themes and Perrault was not a minor figure. His brother was, an, was the court architect who designed the peristyle of the Louvre Palace so this is not, not a minor player at court. And I, when I did the research for this paper I did see there was some discussion about how much access children might have had to these contes or tales and it's called Mother Goose and then a long title in French, and there was one aristocratic woman that said, I don't wish my children to be taught these tales, these contes. So clearly there was, even in the 17th century, there was some discussion about who they were for. I've got a question for uh, Sarah. When you talked about uh, shifting the story on and um, developing it, and I look at if we're in fact doing that culturally right now with the Kate Middleton and Prince William and... I see her wearing the same ring as Diana wore. And symbolically, it seems like, is this about redeeming that story in a way? Just wonder what you think about that. Well, I, I'm sure it is. A, a, we are reimagining it in a, in a current era. I think that's absolutely true. And I think Meredith's work about the makeover being the kind of the the makeover culture has been f incredibly important for me in rethinking how the the sort of Cinderella as the princess element of that story is being reworked. So uh, I don't know whether you, you might like to talk. I think there's, a, there's definitely uh, a public fantasy that the figure of Kate is going to sort of mend all of the wounds that were inflicted by, particularly by the death of Diana... Um, but, but as I said in my talk, uh, I think she's going to do that in a... I think she probably will actually do that, but she's going to do it in a very, very calm, structured way. There's not going to be any sort of reliving of, of anything like Diana's story. Yeah. I, I just wonder, Meredith, if you could talk a little bit more about... Um Transformation, transformation. at the end of your paper you were talking about uh, the transformations now seen as psychotic with the black swan reference. And I just wonder whether or not there's psychosis in fairy tales. And I was thinking of the red shoes specifically, but that might just be because of the Vivian Westwoods. But Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I think Sarah could probably talk about this as well. Um, I think a lot of the violence in, in older versions of fairy stories, you know, I, I definitely read it as psychotic. So, for example, older versions of uh, Snow White have the mother being made, or the stepmother being made, to put on shoes that have been made red hot in the fire and dance until she dies. And that is actually at the wedding, at Snow White's wedding. So that's a pretty amazing wedding entertainment and I would say that that sort of thing is, comes out of a kind of psychotic 
um, imaginary, if you like, or a, or a psychotic culture. Um, I'm not. I'm not really sure that. Uh, you know, putting black swan out there as a kind of antidote to the swan um, was, you know, a bit of a long straw by me, and I'm not really sure that, um, as a culture, we are we are so sick of makeover culture that, and so exhausted by by it, and especially by its traumas represented in the figures of, say, Diana and Jackson, that that we're beginning to define it as psychotic, but it certainly is defined as that in that particular um, contemporary fairy story, actually, which is what Black Swan is. I haven't seen Black Swan yet. Hmm. I mean, I'm very interested in that um, the Red Shoes story and the connection possibly there with Black Swan. I'm always pleased you brought it up, really, um, particularly given we're dealing with shoes and the ballet shoe and the history of the torture of the ballet shoe and the process of the dancing. But I wonder whether the Red Shoes and um, Black Swan are really talking about a kind of the more the themes of perfection and compulsion... Um, um, but it's also a fair thread of envy there as well in that story. So, but the feet being mutilated, I mean, I, that's why I was trying to throw it to you, is that I, I think that that has been a motif there in the trying to fit into the smaller size sh uh, shoe, trying to suffer, uh, um, the suffering to do with shoes. And I was sort of interested if you could comment on that. I'll talk a bit about the red shoe concept. Um, it's, the, uh, it's a type of orgasmic frenzy that, um, where she puts the shoes on and she cannot stop, stop dancing until her feet are cut off in a, a gruesome kind of image. Uh, but it's interesting how, this, how much this idea of the red shoe gets reused in everything from... Kate Bush to a club in the US which is called something like the Red Shoe Club and it's for women who've been severely depressed and uh, they, they band together I think on the internet and they use the kind of motif of, they take back you know, the, the um, they reappropriate the idea of the Red Shoe and they make it something po positive and affirmative and a kind of um, a feminist statement. So it's interesting um, um, it's why it's very complicated talking about um, it, you see it very much in the Sex and the City episodes about high shoes, about how shoes relate to female agency. And it's why uh, it's quite interesting to think about... Um, of course, uh, there could be the element of um, suffering and discomfort, but also about the type of power that women in the past have taken from very extreme type of shoes, platform shoes and shoes that Venetian courtesans or prostitutes wore, particularly tall ones that were also worn by noble women in the city. I mean, in a way, to be fair, it's very hard to make the... Trans I know you're trying to ask you this. Um, to make the transfer between, um, you know, one fairy tale and another, and this is a kind of a good example where, you know, there's some things that they're, they're in common, some motifs that are translating over, but we're in a different story when we step over into the red shoes. So maybe we should just stay on the Cinderella side for a while. Okay. 
Yes, yeah, please. I'm interested to ask about the proliferation of princess paraphernalia in girls' culture today because um, Meredith's paper had the you know girl in the princess dress and the number of girls I see at the shopping centre in tiaras and Sarah's paper had the Disney, you can get your wedding at, at Disney uh, at any of the parks um, done in that Cinderella style. So I'm just wondering what you account for this translation of um, princess culture, Cinderella idealisation in girls today when technically they don't really need a man to get wealth, to get the, the gown. Um, you don't have to be a princess any longer. Is, do you see it as a, a reaction against uh, trying to push women back into wanting traditional uh, desires? Or I, I just can't rationalise why all these women are putting their little girls in you know, tiaras yeah. at the shopping centre. <laughs> what is this? I don't think it's rational. Um, <laughs> Uh, look, going to Toys R Us um, is an v- extremely depressing experience. There are rows upon rows of, of toys for girls and every single one of them is pink and, and every second one of them is something to do with princess. Um, I, think it's, I actually think it's partly laziness on the part of... Um, people who produce things for children. So it's partly a lack of imagination. It's easy to just fall back on the princess thing. Oh, we'll make, you know, Halloween costumes. They can all go as princesses, you know. So it's it's partly laziness. In terms of the... Um, yes, there isn't actually a real interest in getting the prince at the end of the story. And that's clear when you look at a show like Bridezilla, where the whole show is about the wedding, about the outfit, and it's all about her. And the groom might as well just be another accessory. Like, he's actually less important, actually, than her shoes. Um, so, but again, that's a really, um, a really clear example of makeover culture at work because it's about becoming. It's about a process of becoming something that's going to be perfect for a moment, but after that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but it's not rational and I I can't answer your question, actually. (laughs) I've got a comment on that question Um, and that is that I see it as rather the girls are learning to discriminate and that they can get what they want without a father or without a mother supporting them. That's how um, I read my three-year-old granddaughter's absolute dedication to Cinderella. She's not coming from any of the other attributes that Sarah talked about in her talk, or not evidently, you know, it doesn't appear to be that way, but she's absolutely fascinated and when I've sat there and talked to her about it, it's this, she's showing me how to get there for me. So it's just, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I had a question that I wanted to ask Peter and that was... um, The whole idea of shoes as soul covers, covering the souls, and in our society, in our culture today, we need something to act as an interface between the earth and our souls because we can't be exposed to a solid experience of the earth. And all those high heels I see as um, lifting the stability. Our heels give us our stability when we walk. And the high platforms 
lift us off from the ground so we don't have that same stability in our contact with the earth and our souls. Would you care to comment on that at all? Yes, a very good question. Um, most societies actually do uh, attempt uh, in pr uh, pre-modern uh, structures to navigate between the body, the soul, as you say, and the earth. And, for example, it's a myth that Indigenous Australians wore no shoes. There are several groups that did um, for um, gathering oysters, but also there are magic shoes of feathers that were worn in the Kimberley, I think. Kardacha, I think they're called. There's some interesting survivals in museums around the world. The, um, but the, the whole thing about the shoe, the foot, is completely cultural. So Japanese people uh, did not wear shoes much at all, even though it's extremely cold in winter in Japan, until their clothing was westernised. Uh, and also they had all sorts, of, uh, li all sorts of liminal issues or spatial issues. So uh, country Japanese people might wear fibre sandals and they often had to be burned before they entered a new town or a new city. And they also have very strict prohibitions about taking their shoes off before they go to the, the bathroom or the toilet in um, pre-19th century Japan, which you can still see being played out in societies like Sweden and Japan where you really it's very rude to go into somebody's house wearing your outside shoes. You have to wear your stocking feet or be given some kind of slippers to wear when you enter another space. So um, there, it's absolutely a kind of... I think most anthropologists would agree that it's absolutely a kind of central thing about navigating this, this space between the slime of the earth or the earth itself and, and, and the human body making contact with, that, with the earth. And then in European culture and, and Chinese culture, there are so many different ways in which men and women have, have navigated and articulated that point between earth and, and their clothing. It's really the kind of the story of Western footwear. And we, it, we can't just say women on a t tall platform shoe were uncomfortable and uh, uh, objectified because um, in many cases... Uh, it was a, rather like rich clothes. It was um, uh, this desirable um, attribute that you could say that gave women a voice at a time when they didn't have other type of voice. So that's one way Renaissance historians are now often writing about rich clothing for women, that it was a engagement with fashion, including shoes, was a type of voice for women. Can I ask a question, question Con? Please yeah, do. It's for Peter. Um, I'm, I was really fascinated by what you said about the invisible shoe and I'd like to hear a bit more about that. What you um, reminded me of was a picture by the artist Julie Rapp, you've probably seen it, oh, yes. um, of, the, of a body modification that's been done in uh, Photoshop of a woman's foot that has been reshaped into the shape of a high heel shoe and that seems to be a very literal invisible shoe but what what is the attraction of the invisible shoe given mm. that shoes are are about fabric and about yeah. stuff oh, well it's a good really good question i go in a couple of different ways there's a kind of a late 18th century neoclassical ideal about what i call limpid clothing or light clothing where um 
it's that period that you know people associate with Jane Austen muslin dresses. But if if you begin to think about the shoes, both the boots for the for the men, the wealthy men, and the slippers for women, were actually and the and the revival of a kind of type of Roman sandal that was completely inappropriate for European weather, are actually about in a way the disintegration of the of the shoe and also the shift away from this idea of heavy shoes. If you've handled, um, if you've looked at it in museums shoes from before 1800, they're actually incredibly kind of clunky and heavy. Then there's another strand, and that is the late 19th century heliophiles that believed that in the future we would not wear clothes. And that, that was a really serious movement, um, or sometimes influenced by anthropology and, and ethnography. And lots of those people speculated about clothes of the future, and that's uh, where... Michael Carter's work on why Superman wears his underpants on the outside is so interesting. But that kind of, you know, that Superman image from, which I think is a 1930s image of Superman wearing that skin-tight bodysuit and his underpants over the top, he's, he, what he's wearing on his feet are kind of like medieval-style bottines or boots, which are really kind of stockings. And medieval men wore these kind of things that were neither a stocking or a shoe but a kind of combined garment, um, then they'd have to put the pattern on, the wooden thing, over the top to walk around in the street. So I think there's that strand. And then there's this utopian strand you get, which is really to do with modernism. And I think Ferragamo was... Ferragamo had to deal with lack of materials and poverty of materials, so he used... He made a shoe out of fishing wire, which was virtually invisible, and he did make a glass shoe. He also made a gold shoe for an Australian woman, solid gold, who I have not been able to find out who she was. So if anybody knows, I'd very much like to be told. I don't think the gold shoe survives. But um, he was interested in this kind of um, utopian future in, in which um, things would become rationalised and, and simple. Does that help yeah, explain yeah, it a little bit? Yeah. But I think the most compelling one is the neoclassical moment where, when nudity and, and the, the myth of the noble savage and ideas about classical drapery come together in this almost nude vision about dressing. Um, I've got a question for Peter. I'd like to ask him up here. Where? I can't see you. (laughs) In the middle. Okay. I'd like to ask about the relationship between the high heel and power for Mm. women. Mm. I found it very interesting. I mean, I know when I'm in high heels myself, I can actually look men in the eye when I'm talking to them. <laughs> it makes a, a huge difference. But, but you often hear people saying, I feel somehow more powerful in high heels. Have you got any comment about that? Oh, I really get terrified when I'm asked this question. <laughs> um, it's just such a common thing. it's what I'm always said. asked, that it, especially with the very extreme heels that have been in high fashion on the catwalk for the last two years. Um, so I didn't really go into it, but um, the bottom line is... High heels used not to be about gender, they used to be about power. Men wore high heels as well. You all know the Louis XIV story with the red heels and the elevation of the men in those heels. Um, uh, Lots of people that write about high heels point out that men and women have different distribution of body fat. It's why transsexuals who wear high heels actually can have quite pulled it off. Certainly, I've never seen one who's managed to pull it off, and I, I know, not, have been acquainted with quite a few transsexuals in my life. You know, some not operative and some some performing. But um, someone like Valerie Steele, who's written that famous book on fetish, and I respect Valerie very much. She really goes down the line about. 
the um, arching of the body and the body looking aroused and all that that kind of stuff. So you can you can either subscribe to that kind of thing about why it's done, about making the calves look attractive in certain ways. But then you could you could um, apply that kind of idea also to. Well, there are the. I get annoyed when I read a description of why men wore high heels in, the, say, the 17th century. We're told it's to make their legs look sexy. Well, how do we know that? There are no sources that say that they believed they had sexy legs. Men were meant to have nice legs, and they valued athleticism, and that's why men had to do jousting and fencing and horse riding. These were things that were designed to make the body appear in particular ways. So it's a very tricky question because I don't think you can generalise across very large periods of time. And I think a woman in 1950 would have a very different attitude to a woman today about how they feel about wearing high heels. And, of course, the heels would be very different and, and um, probably much more extreme today. Um, I can see why it's actually a very fraught area because... Um, it goes to the heart of how women are meant to appear in public roles. And I think if Julia Gillard started to wear, um, you know, Alexander McQueen or something, I, you know, there'd be a national scandal. I don't know whether she'd get more or less votes. But, um, <laughs> and the bottom line is, um, despite what's often... I like very much Luella Negrin, the Tasmanian-based uh, philosophical scholar about art and also written a very good book about clothing, who points out that maybe we've gone too far with all the discussion about throwing identity on and off easily at will, the kind of postmodern, uh, very 1980s, 90s idea that certainly I was trained in. And she points out that the bottom line is men and women do have different um, expectations and anxiety in the society we live in at the moment about how to appear. So I, I'm, I'm not going to attempt to um, answer it properly. I just can't do it. That was a good go. Mm. <laughs> well done. But I, I had a male friend once, a, a very wonderful male friend, an art historian, Rico Francis, who used to wear tights in the 90s, women's tights, striped. He looked just like a wonderful, like a Burgundian 15th century man. And he was very angry about kind of gender binaries and polarities. And so he'd wear a T-shirt just to cover his uh, uh, genital area discreetly and tights and kind of boots. And of course... And he lived in Canberra, and people thought he was completely mad. And his view about all this stuff about fashion is, um, so long as men wear makeup and wear high heels, then it's fantastic. And I think that's... Like, when I'm li listening about the princess stuff, I think if little boys are running around dressed like princess, terrific. Yeah, mm. but they don't. It's very rare. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There's nothing wrong with the pink aisle at Toys R Us in itself. It's just that only girls are really allowed in it. boys have to do something else. It's an extremely narrow view of gender and of femininity. Very, very repressive in its narrowness, I think. I wonder if it's very material, like whether or not the princess has taken over from the fairy and whether or not um, we've become much more materialistic mm -hmm. and the princess is part of that kind of quest for the material mm -hmm. um, that's maybe they're unconsciously being expressed in the families and also whether or not it's um, partly the shadow side of everybody being very special and maybe that sort of notion of ordinary childhood and ordinary children who are 
uh, terrific and horrible all at the one time, that maybe that not everything you do is um, absolutely fantastic, that maybe there's a sort of a shadow side of the princess. And, uh, I mean, I think that it's great that that's being raised, but I think what it's pointing to is something unconscious in the culture that's being expressed. And we have to ask the question, what's being expressed? And I think that was your question, really. And I think, you know, part of that answer lies with a big debate about gender. You know, that huge... the the islet toys are us, but I think there's something sort of deeper about what's going on in families, what's going on in, um, with an idea of childhood. Um, so I just offer that into the mix as well. I can't believe people have worn themselves out with Cinderella. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm bringing up the right thing, but um, I feel like there needs to be a fairy story about um, getting to midlife and going forward and reaching a potential um, about wisdom, about handing it back to the young. There's so much. Um, there's so much about youthfulness, but there's life after fifty. And it's ongoing, and it can be ongoing to a hundred. And there's, we need to be talking about health and all the virtues of um, of ageing, but ageing gracefully and well. Um, that's my fairy story that I'm I'm yeah. creating for me. Well, and there are other people interested in that as well, and so there are some collections of stories for older people. Right. And there's some, I think, reclamation of crone stories. Um, I think I'm really, I'm really interested in the Handless Maiden story as a story that brings women into adult, mature life. But I do think that um, I'm certainly interested in the older stories. I'm really interested in the Baba Yaga ones um, and what, what might be in those stories as a sort of like for the crone period of life. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot there in, I mean, fairy stories I think have a lot to offer in that area and I think we'll be seeing more of that and um, there's a fantastic book that came out last year called um, Baba Yaga Laid an Egg by um, um, uh, Dubra Ugrasic who's a um, Yugoslavian woman and it's a fantastic if you get a chance to get it it's uh, out in paperback it's a fantastic place to start and she's written a contemporary tale about Baba Yaga and she's a few stories actually and there's a lot of information there about the Baba Yaga character and it's, it's so funny and it's so true it's great, I recommend it we're also seeing a move away from youth culture um, if we look at some popular culture products. And it's, it's basically, it's, it's all to do with capitalism because baby boomers are now the biggest and the wealthiest generation ever and they're soon to be the oldest. Um, so it makes no sense for an advertising or a marketing person to dismiss 
that that market. There was there were some ads a couple of years ago by the Commonwealth Bank in Australia targeted at retired people and they they had a sort of fairy story element. One of them was it was a series of them. One of them was a picture of a four wheel drive um, idling in front of Uluru and uh, the caption was remember when your kids threatened to run away from home? And so there's this fantasy that in, in age you can actually do uh, all of those youthful things, all of those crazy things. Yeah, so I, I think I agree with Sarah that that's something that's going to change because of that generation. Yeah. Um, you spoke this morning about how you chose the fairy tales for Reenchanted. Um, and you said you were very strict with how you chose them and leaving out the nursery rhymes. Can you tell us how you decided which ones to pick and what makes them a fairy tale and holds other stories outside of that category? Um, a fairy story to me, or what's been called the wonder tale or the fairy tale, has, el- has to have... Um, in some way, some element of enchantment, so something's not what it seems, and that there is some process of transformation in those stories. So that's why um, that might distinguish... And that's from... Not from... I I didn't create that. That's from the people who've been studying um, the fairy tale... um, the history of fairy tales, the origins of fairy tales. That's the sort of definition that most people are working with. And they've gone through all the fairy tales and they've classified them into types. And so what you have, uh, the maiden in the tower type, the brother and sister story, uh, or the um, confrontation of the witch in the forest story, or uh, beauty and the beast. So there's sort of types. The frog king uh, would be a type of fairy tale. So... Um, I tried to pick stories that represented different story types, but also that the stories were well known enough in culture for people to be able to feel that they were part of in the back of our collective minds, that people could recognise them as familiar in some way. It worried me a bit that the familiarity might just come from Disney, but I sort of hoped that might be enough. And But most people, if you ask them to really tell you the story of a fairy tale, you get most people remember a bit of it but not the whole thing really and so it was very sad to have to limit it to six because there's so many other fantastic ones you know and I did mention that I would have loved to have done Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty Um, but I did get to do Snow White that was good Um, so um, yeah I mean there's hundreds of types so basically you know my decision was familiarity um, and also cross-culture, that I could choose ones where there were versions across a range of cultures and traditions and that they went across time. Obviously not all of them go back to an Egyptian version or a, a Chinese version, but that there are enough range across uh, different historical periods. So that was my motivation. Um, and once you make that decision, you're stuck with it. So... Um, yeah, and also when I started to look at artists' work who were reinterpreting the stories, things seemed very to cluster, you know, that, that there was a lot of artwork around about 
these stories or ways in which people had thought about them through cinema or uh, visual art or photography. So that sort of confirmed for me my decision. If I was a bit doubtful, I just looked to see what had been done. I think we've exhausted everyone. Oh no, there's one more. <laughs> No, it won't be picked up. Okay, um, something I've noticed in probably over the last 10 to 15 years is that this, um, I suppose, the, the cult of the princess in um, young children's toys and in young children's literature has really developed, I think, symbiotically with um, a cult of celebrity. So it's sort of the thing that we've started to see with the advent of the internet, with the access to what's going on in people's private lives. I was wondering if, from either a fashion perspective or from a folktale perspective, whether you'd have any comments on sort of this, the idea of the cult of celebrity and the cult of the princess. Um, I, I just think it's interesting to remember, though, that, you know, when... Princess Grace, uh, who was a movie star, married Prince Rainier. The whole event was she was dressed by Hollywood costumier. The arrival in Monaco was completely staged. It was filmed, orchestrated, set up. It was re reported in newsreel and media. Uh, the world was obsessed with the kind of that princess narrative, which was movie star to. Uh, someone marrying into an aristocratic family. So I just, as you asked your question, I just remembered, because I've got a student working on first ladies and the idea of the princess and the queen in 20th century culture. It, after, the, after the war, there was a very big need to have this kind of... Um, um, the way glamour came together with ideas from cinema and this deracinated European royalty that often had no status but continued to move around the world and intermarried into Hollywood royalty. So as you first began to talk, I thought about the Paris Hilton but, and the kind of vulgarity but also rather fun, fun nature of Paris Hilton and her gang. But uh, maybe it's got quite a long, you know, reaches back 50 or 60 years to that kind of um, newsreel and television culture. I just think that connections between celebrity and princess are also to do with what Sarah said about um, about acquisitiveness and, and wanting stuff. Yeah, so um, we, you know, both princesses and celebrities are people who can afford a lot of a lot of stuff. You know, and you'll often actually find the word princess emblazoned on, um, especially on young women's pre most precious stuff. So I saw a black BMW four-wheel drive the other day with princess... It wasn't the actual number plate, but it was in, in the, written on the frame around the number plate. And, you know, you, you get... We, we had those princess juicy couture um, tracksuits that... They're expensive tracksuits. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I think um, someone interviewed in Reenchantment said that they thought celebrity was the new prince and princess. 
um, and that you could substitute, you know, it was sort of interchangeable. And I was just sort of, as you were talking, thinking about the Oscars and just thinking about the Oscars night and all the, the princesses. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I think that we would have to say in our, in our culture that we have to take account of celebrity in the same breath as, um, as the royalty idea. Yeah, and the, the um, list of guests has been released for Kate and William's wedding and, of course, Posh and Bex are on it. OK, thank you. Um, we're coming up to time, so we might uh, uh, wind it up uh, there. Uh, we might want to thank our speakers again for three really interesting uh, papers. Thank you. Thank you. And uh